Okay. So we're in John chapter 20, verse 24. And today's message, which was intended for Easter last Sunday, had to be put off because we had some people in our group that were sick, but we're all healthy and we're back together once again. And it's actually fitting because according to the Easter Orthodox calendar, Eastern Orthodox calendar, it is Easter today. So it's Easter somewhere. You know, they say it's five o'clock somewhere. Well, it's Easter somewhere. Uh, anyways, uh, the title of this message is Our Blessing of Salvation. And we're going to break up this message after we silence Jamie's tablet into the blessing and the salvation. The blessing and the salvation. And in John chapter 20, we're going to read about the blessing. This is going to be a familiar story to y'all, but I just want to read it because it's powerful. It's probably my favorite story about the resurrection. And it's about doubting Thomas. And so in John 20, verse 24, it reads as follows in the King James. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, which is amazing right there, just the fact that in his glorified body, Jesus appears straight into the room. But it says he stood in the midst and said, Peace unto you, peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Another note here, just a side note. We're used, of course, to the idea that Jesus is omniscient, right? He knows all things. He is everywhere in spirit. So when we read the fact that Jesus responds to Thomas and says, Here are my hands. Okay, take your finger and put it in my hands. Take your hand and put it in my side. Thomas knew what Jesus was referring to. Jesus knew what Thomas had said prior when he wasn't there. So for someone like Thomas, who obviously doesn't believe the resurrection has happened, he's not convinced that Jesus is the Christ because he lost faith at the crucifixion. For Jesus to say this here, this is essentially Jesus saying, I know what you said, Thomas. Even though I wasn't there physically, I was there spiritually. So this is a testament to his deity. And of course, Thomas recognizes this and he responds with one of the greatest. It is probably the greatest statement of faith in all the gospel of John. Thomas answered and said unto him, unto him, not to somebody else, unto Jesus, my Lord and my God. This is one of those references that it's funny. A lot of Unitarians and people that deny the Trinity, they struggle with this one. And anytime you you put that to them, they have to. They're obligated to come up with some response. They have to write articles. They have to try to come up with an explanation to get around the plain sense here. That G- Jesus is being addressed by Thomas as Lord and God. So what ironically the Jehovah's Witnesses will say about this is Thomas is exclaiming and saying to the Father, My Lord and my God. Well, first off, at this time in history... Taking the Lord's name in vain like that was highly offensive, and it's not something that any Jew would knee-jerk do. You know, it might be a knee-jerk thing for us because we know that it happens a lot. We hear people saying the Lord's name in vain all the time. But this is a Jewish individual, so we have to take that into context or consideration. And then the other thing, of course, is it says he spoke unto him. So it's, it's that clear in the Greek. 
as, as much as it is in the English, he is speaking to Jesus and he's saying in literal Greek, the Lord of me and the God of me. You can imagine his hands reaching out and, and, and gesturing to Jesus, the Lord of me and the God of me. This is not just, you know, him saying, hey, Jesus, talking to Jesus. But it is, I also believe, a statement of commitment here. I am committed now to the idea that you are the Lord, my Lord, and you are God, my God. So very powerful statement of faith, and it's the greatest one. There are other statements of faith all throughout. At the very beginning in John chapter 1, Nathaniel says, You are the Christ, the Son of David. But it is right here that Jesus is acknowledged as God in the flesh. And just as John chapter 1 begins with this introductory statement, He was in the beginning with God, and He was God, the last part of John wraps everything up with saying, I stated this in the beginning, that Jesus was God. And I gave you all the evidence, I gave you all the signs, and now here we have an example of John, or uh, Thomas in John, knowing the signs, having believed them, and acknowledging Jesus. But in verse number 29, we get the main statement here that I wanted to highlight today. And it is one of my favorites too, Nana. It says, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So he's not discounting that Thomas's faith wasn't real faith. It obviously is. He's saying, good for you, essentially, but the people who haven't seen and yet believe, there's a special blessing for them. Now, I've always loved this verse because it, it, it promises me a blessing, and I can almost imagine being over Thomas's shoulder. When, when Thomas is there before Jesus, I have no doubt that he was bowing before him. I can almost see Jesus looking past Thomas as if I'm looking in on this scene and I'm looking at me and saying, but blessed are those who believe but haven't seen. That is very powerful to me. That's always been enough to just treasure this verse, but I've recently wanted to understand what is the blessing exactly? Because there is a blessing that's special for us, a blessing that Thomas didn't have because Thomas saw and he believed. So he had eternal life. He's saved. He's in heaven today. But there's obviously something reserved for those that haven't seen. So what is that blessing? Well, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what it is. Because I think 1 Peter 1, which re references back to this event. Okay, so Peter clearly, as I'm going to show you, is thinking of this event when he writes a particular verse in that chapter. But before we get to that place and I give you the answer and I, and I break it down for you, I want to go ahead and tell you the main points of the message. And the first one is this blessing involves a special group, which is obvious. And that group is us today. We didn't see Jesus resurrected. So this blessing is something that we receive. The second point is this blessing naturally involves special joy. Whenever we see Jesus, when we get to heaven, our joy will be different than Thomas's. And I'll tell you why. Because even though Thomas, after Jesus left in the ascension, longed to see Jesus again, he was seeing Jesus again while we will be seeing Jesus for the first time. Okay, it's kind of like eating a food for the first time. All right, and it's a delicious food. Other people have had it before. They continue to eat it because they enjoy it, right? But that first time that they eat that food is better and it defines everything else. And so whenever we get to heaven, it will be our first time seeing Jesus. And because we had not seen him before, and our faith was apart from that sight, our joy will be especially great. The second point, or third point, sorry, is that this blessing involves a special opportunity. And that opportunity is something that Peter deals with. So I'm not going to really go into that yet. And then lastly, this blessing involves a special reward. And so points three and four go together. 
And they're really what I want to focus on today because points one and two are obvious. Obviously, it's for a special group. We're part of that group because we haven't seen and yet we believe. And obviously, it's going to involve a special joy because our joy is not going to be diluted in any sense by having seen a miracle or having seen Jesus, okay? Yes, we see miracles happen in our lifetime, but nothing like was performed by Jesus. So when it all comes upon us, when we get to heaven, all of that, that supernatural wonder, it's going to fall fresh on us. But the opportunity that's hinted at in 1 Peter is what we want to look at today. So if you will, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 1. And if you've been listening to us, we've been in 1 Peter a lot the past couple weeks because... We've been dealing with baptism at first. We discussed that. Uh, This past week, we talked about the atonement and how uh, Christ uh, bore the wrath of God on the cross for us. And I wanted to discuss that because it's Easter time. And a lot of people, I think, don't understand the atonement. And there's lots of confusion nowadays. So if you're listening to this, go back and listen to our uh, discussion on the atonement because it is really important to understand the truth about it when you have so much heresy being taught right now, especially under the guise of evangelicalism. People who say, I'm an evangelical, but the way they present the atonement isn't biblical at all. But anyways, in 1 Peter chapter 1, let's start in verse 3. So this is after that intro. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's stop there. We're going to take it one verse at a time and just explain it as we go. So the first point that Peter is dealing with here is the ground of our inheritance. He's about to go into this discussion of an inheritance, and we need to understand what our inheritance is based on. It's based on the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, who is the firstborn. Um, We talked about this a little bit earlier this week when we discussed the atonement. Jesus earned salvation. He earned salvation by perfectly righteous life. But not only did he earn it for himself, obviously Jesus didn't need salvation in the sense of being forgiven for sin because he never sinned. But he earned a life in heaven with God forever. If anybody ever earned it as a man, Jesus did. But not only did he earn it for himself, he earned it for other people. He earned it not just for a select group, but for anybody whosoever believes. So the resurrection of Jesus is this glorious moment where Jesus is manifested as the one who satisfied God on the cross. And we talked about that in 1 Peter 3. It says when Jesus died, it says in spirit, though he died in flesh, in spirit he was made alive. So that means when Jesus was in the grave, from the perspective of a lot of people, Jesus had been accursed. Jesus had been rejected. The disciples thought, we've got it all wrong. We've lost our Messiah. He must not have been one. I mean, Messiahs don't die. So from the perspective of the world, it it was either in your face, followers of Jesus, he's not really the one, or it was people honestly grieving because they had invested so much in this person, Jesus, and they felt like they had lost it all. But during that time, Jesus was, in the eyes of the Father, pleasing to him. It wasn't that Jesus was in this place, okay, where the spirits of um, those fallen angels were before the flood, and there he's suffering or he's continuing to pay for our sin. That's a really weird idea that some people have taught. It's not biblical at all. Jesus goes there to proclaim what? A victory. So what is Jesus doing while everybody's mourning up top? 
down below, he's going on a victory procession. That's what ancient kings would do. I actually recently read um, a history book, and it was talking about how after a, a significant battle in Scotland, King Robert the Bruce did a victory procession into England. And so it was basically saying, I've won. And even though some of the people may have been on the fence about it, he was saying, I have won. I, I've, I've conquered. I purchased the victory. And Jesus was doing that while everybody was mourning up top. But it was the resurrection of Jesus that showed them that he was really the son of God. In Romans 1 verse 4, it says, the resurrection is how Jesus is declared to be the son of God. He was always the son of God. The father knew that. He knew that. The father is pleased with him. The father accepts Jesus's atonement. But it wasn't until the third day after the crucifixion that Jesus was acknowledged in a public manner to be the one who had accomplished this victory. So our inheritance, anything, whether it be justification, uh, receiving the gift of eternal life by being born again, or any other rewards that are subsequent to that, all of that is part of the inheritance and it's all purchased by Jesus because of what he did on the cross. And the resurrection is the ground of that in our mind. We should always go back to the resurrection and know this is the empirical, physical proof that what happened on the cross is sufficient for me as an individual. Okay, now let's look at verse 4. So he says that we have been begotten, born again unto this lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved for you in heaven. Now, when it says it's uncorruptible, this isn't just saying that it's good. There are good inheritances that are corruptible, aren't they? I mean, there are things that you can receive, let's say those Abrahamic blessings, okay? Being in the land of Canaan, enjoying the abundance of that land. The Israelites, that generation that saw the giants and fled in terror, right? They wandered in the wilderness and they died there, didn't they? They didn't get to go into the promised land. Uh, even Moses, because he struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it, he missed out on living the rest of his days in this land of promise. So obviously that is a blessing, that is a reward, but even if Moses went into the land, eventually he's going to die, right? That, that blessing will end. Okay, so what makes this blessing unique is not just that it's from God and it's good, but it's uncorruptible. So this is all part of the new covenant being an everlasting covenant. The old covenant is temporary. It fades. There were obviously good things to it. God's not going to make a bad covenant with the people, but it had its purpose. That purpose is fulfilled. It passes away. But this new covenant is one that has no end. And of course, that's linked to what? We talked about this when we went through the Hebrews passages. It's linked to Jesus being the eternal son of God. So Jesus is not just the son of God. He is the eternal son of God. And through his resurrection, he is declared to be such, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And because he is eternally accepted by God, then our inheritance is, by necessity, also eternal. So the type of inheritance that we have is one that never ends. Now let's look at verse 5. Then it says something about us. So before in verse 4, it's about our inheritance. Now it's about us, who are kept by the power of God through faith, unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this is a salvation that hasn't been completed yet. Now, of course, we have been born again. Peter's already said that. It's sealed. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit the moment we believe. Paul talked about that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. But this salvation is one that 
we long for, we look forward to. And just as that inheritance is kept aside for us, it's reserved in God's heavenly bank, we are also kept for it. So that inheritance won't pass away, and neither will we pass away in an ultimate sense. Obviously, we may pass away physically, but we will not pass away spiritually. We're kept by the power of God so that way we can enjoy that inheritance whenever it's revealed in the last day. And it's not revealed, by the way, whenever a believer dies and goes to heaven. Isn't that interesting? He says for the last day. He doesn't say for the day of your death, but for the last time. That's referring to the end times when Christ returns. So people, when they die in Christ, they do go to heaven and they enjoy the blessings of heaven. They enjoy that heavenly environment. But it's consistently taught in the New Testament that there is going to be a special unveiling at the rapture. So, for example, my mama and my ditta that are in heaven right now, they're enjoying heaven. It's a place of undiluted joy. But if this is imaginable, if this is something we can conceive of, and I don't think we can't, they are still waiting for something else. There's no sadness in heaven, right? But right now they're waiting for the unveiling of the inheritance because the judgment seat hasn't happened yet. They don't have the glorified bodies yet. The rewards that we will experience for all eternity, they don't have them yet. And so though they finish their race, the end of the race is not necessarily the same time that the rewards are divvied out. And that's why whenever there was a competition in ancient Greece, everybody runs the race. Once the race is completely done, everybody has reached the end. That is when there's a grand ceremony where everybody comes together and they receive the, the laurel that would be put on their head, the victor's crown, and the other rewards that went along with that. So if I was to die right now and go before the Lord, I know I'm accepted, I'm in heaven, I'm going to be able to enjoy the reunion with all these people that I've missed, the people that I've never met, but we're all going to be waiting in anticipation, but it hasn't happened yet, there's going to be this big party, so to speak. And that's when the rapture happens, everybody's got to be present for that. And so... We are kept for that. This refers to our security. Now, when it says kept to the power of God uh, by faith through faith, this is referring to obviously eternal security. The moment we have faith, that is the instrument that brings us into God's family. Uh, being born again is receiving eternal life. What is the thing we have to have before we receive eternal life? Faith. And so faith is what brings us into this eternal sphere, this incorruptible sphere. Now, let's look at verses 6 and 7. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Persecution was on the rise in this time. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Obviously, this praise and honor and glory is ultimately for the Lord Jesus. I mean, even the crowns that we receive, we're going to cast back at his feet. But I think that what he's saying here, right now you're being tried. Right now is a time of work. Not working for your salvation, okay? There's no hint of that anywhere in the Bible. But it is a, is a test. How are we going to live now that we've been saved? Are we going to run that race well? And that's why in the book of Hebrews, it says that our rest hasn't come yet. It says strive diligently to enter that rest. And a lot of people, because they think that rest refers to salvation, they're like, oh, that sounds like work salvation. I've even heard some Baptists say, oh, no, the King James wrong. It, it doesn't mean work diligently. That's not what it means. That's exactly what it means <laughs> in the Greek. Absolutely. But since they interpret rest as eternal life, that's where they get hung up. But rest doesn't mean that. It's like, okay, I'm out here. I'm working in my garden. 
right? After I'm finished with this work, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be out here for this long. I've got so many hours to work under the hot sun. And then once I'm finished working, I'm going to go inside and have my rest. I'm going to have my cold glass of sweet tea. I'm going to have my fried chicken. I'm going to spend time with my family, whatever. However you define that rest. That sounds really good to me right now. But that's what's being referred to in Hebrews. So right now we are working and we are being tried and our faith is being tested. It's being refined. But, you know, the difference between metals and us is we have a choice in the matter. I mean, obviously, if we were passive, then God could do whatever he wanted with us. He could refine us to where we were perfect. But the fact is, when we come before God one day, some are going to be more complete in their relationship with Christ. They're going to be closer to God, more intimate with God than others. And that's because some people invested in that relationship now and other people didn't. And the trials that they went through were being used by God for the purpose of refining them, you know, getting away the dross, that's what it's called, the impurities, burning that away, removing that, so that way when the process is complete, those people are more beautiful. Um, we are more holy in our practice. And so this is what he's referring to here, having our faith refined. Now, obviously, this has to do with our future reward because he says, if you are being tried your faith is being tried, that is, and it is being purified because you're holding on to your faith. He says, when we are taken in the rapture at the appearing of the Lord Jesus, that faith will be found unto praise, honor, and glory. So he's teasing this future reward. He doesn't tell us exactly what it is right here. But that means for number four, our faith's refinement correlates with our future reward and so anticipates it. Okay, so real quick, before we move on any further, I want to go back over these, these points in 1 Peter. The first one is the ground of the inheritance and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the answer right there. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus assures our inheritance. The next point is the type of inheritance, and that inheritance belongs to the eternal Son of God. And so since it belongs to the eternal Son of God, this inheritance, by definition, is everlasting and cannot be corrupted in any way. Number three, the security of the heirs. Not only is the inheritance preserved for us, but we are preserved for it. Not only are we, uh, not only is that inheritance preserved for us, but we are preserved for it. Regardless of how much we eventually obtain, that's an important point too. Uh, salvation is going to be received by all people. But what is the quality of that salvation? You know, some people may feel uncomfortable with this, but salvation in, in Hebrews, in James, in Peter's letters, it has a pretty broad understanding of being delivered from sin. Being delivered from sin. Now, obviously, we're delivered from sin's penalty the moment we believe in Jesus. We're justified. We're born again. But we're delivered from sin in our practice whenever we are having our faith refined through perseverance. Whenever the going gets tough. If we push through and we honor the Lord in our lives, if we don't give into temptation, whatever form that temptation might take, that results in a greater salvation or a greater portion in the inheritance that one day will be revealed. All right, now, uh, verse, or sorry, uh, number four, the purification of faith, our faith's refinement correlates with our future reward. So that brings us up to verse number eight. Talking about Jesus, and this is this verse that refers back to John 20. Whom not having seen, ye love. Whom not having seen, ye love. In whom, though ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 
every single commentary that I've read argues that this is referring to what Jesus said to Thomas. Peter was there. He heard it. Peter, he speaks in his letters as being an eyewitness. I, you know, I saw Jesus, he says in, in uh, 2 Peter. I saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The people that he's writing to weren't there. He can honestly say of them, you haven't seen him. You weren't like us, like me, the apostles. But even though you haven't seen him, you love him. In whom, though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now let's look at uh, verse number nine. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, the word soul in English automatically refers to that invisible spiritual part of us. That's how we automatically understand it in a religious context. But that's not always how it's been used in English, and that's not how it's used in the Greek language all the time. Sometimes it does, of course, refer to that immaterial spiritual part of us, but not always. Often, soul refers to just one's life in general, the whole man, the whole woman, the whole person. You know, who they are, what they are, what they have. It refers to just us, our quality of life. And so he's saying that because of your faith, you receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Obviously, this includes being justified. Okay, that's guaranteed. He's already said that they're begotten. So they have that end of their faith. They're children of God, and so they have some stake in this inheritance. But he said because they rejoice and they hold on to their faith, even in the midst of persecution, they're going to receive the end of their faith, which is the salvation of their souls, which no doubt refers back to this grand inheritance that he's been talking about. So for number five on your notes, verse eight talks about the opportunity of faith. Even though we haven't seen Jesus, that gives us an advantage. It really does give us an advantage over those who have who have seen Jesus, since our faith by definition is pure. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, wouldn't you agree that it takes less faith to believe in something that you see? Now, if Jesus appeared resurrected in front of somebody, it is hypothetically possible that someone could say, no, uh, this is something else. You're a ghost. You're a demon. I don't, this is a lie. Okay. It would probably be very difficult for somebody to do that in light of such powerful evidence. But hypothetically, it's possible. So you could say that it does certainly take less faith to believe in a resurrected Jesus if he's standing in the room right in front of you. So therefore, it takes a lot more faith for us to believe in it, right? Now, we do have evidence. We do have proof. I love apologetics. One of my favorite lessons that I teach the students that come to CLC, the Christian Learning Center, is the resurrection. And I give them the seven or eight different theories that the critics come up with to explain away the resurrection. And I show how each one fails to account for three facts. Jesus was crucified. The tomb was empty and his disciples said they saw him after he died and they all died for their faith. Those three facts right there, or you could turn it into four if you wanted. Those three to four facts can only be explained by the resurrection. So I love talking about that, but it does require of me greater faith to believe in a resurrected Jesus than it did for the disciples. That means, guys, when we come into a relationship with Jesus, think back to the time you first believed, whenever it was. I was six years old. When I came into my relationship with Jesus, my faith was, in a sense, stronger and purer than the faith of Thomas. Because Thomas saw something and believed, and I was six, and someone just told me. They told me. Now, of course, as a child, it's a little bit easier to have faith. 
So maybe we should use another example. Let's say an adult, okay? Scott, I know that you got saved later in life, okay? Let's take you as an example. You're a lot different than Thomas. Thomas was an adult when he believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but he saw it. You were an adult when you believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but you didn't see it. So you came into the relationship that you have now with Christ with an advantage over Thomas. You were further along because the faith that you exercised was a greater faith. It was harder for you to believe, so that faith puts you further along in your relationship from the very outset, which is something we really take for granted that we don't think about. But these people that were having faith in the first century, okay, that had seen the miracles, they had seen the resurrection, their faith is no less faith, okay? But their faith is not as pure in quality because they did see something. And that was definitely taken into account when they made their decision to believe. But we didn't see something. We heard it. And without sight, we still made the choice to believe. So I think what Peter's saying is, y'all feel like because you haven't seen, you've missed out on something. But I think he's saying something very different. I think this is awesome for us to hear. I think that if we could paraphrase this, and I always want to be careful when I do that, but I think I understand it well enough to say that Peter would say, guys, don't wish that you were like us because you're actually in a better place than we were when we first got saved. When we first believed, our faith was not as strong because we had already seen all these miracles, but you haven't seen them. Jesus, maybe they've seen some miracles. Let's take that into consideration, but they hadn't seen the resurrection. They hadn't seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, your faith is already pure because of that. So that means in the race, you've got a head start. Okay, you're further ahead than we were when we first got the race started. So use that to your advantage. And what is that advantage? Whenever these trials come your way, know that you've gained so much ground already. So push through because God's going to reward that. The hard faith that you exercised when you first got saved, God will reward that. The hard faith that you continue to exercise now when trials come your way, God's going to reward that and you will receive the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Again, we always think of salvation as from something, but what about to something? Okay, Are we saved? Does God in the salvation process, this changing us, making us into a new creature, is that meant to stop the moment we are born again? Or are we supposed to continue in our growth, right? But how far will we grow? How mature will we get? Isn't it crazy to think, guys, that you can get saved, become a baby in Jesus, and after 20 years of being a Christian, you can still be a baby in Jesus. Or maybe maybe a toddler. When you should be an adult, you should be a seasoned trooper in God's army. That's something to think about. That's an advantage that we have that when we came into our relationship with God, we already had a pure faith. Now, let's look at number six, point six for verse nine. The result of faith. Our having seen Jesus, or not having seen Jesus rather, gives us an advantage over those who have since our faith, or sorry, I'm reading this all wrong. <laughs> our not having seen Jesus gives us an advantage over those who have since our faith is by definition pure. And for number six, the result of faith, salvation is not limited to justification, but it includes all the heavenly inheritance. Salvation is the land which we enter freely through faith, but its resources can be utilized only through faithfulness. So my understanding, the analogy that I came up with, and you can take it or leave it. I read something by C.S. Lewis earlier this week. He gives an analogy for salvation. And in his book, he honestly says, if this doesn't help, 
if this doesn't help you understand it, just cast it by the wayside because I'm just a man. <laughs> and I like that attitude. It's very humble. So use this analogy or don't. But the idea is when you get saved, God brings you into the promised land. You're in the land now. You're part of the heavenly realm. You're a citizen of the kingdom. That's why Paul says we have our citizenship in heaven. So now we're in it. But is that it? Does he just bring us into the land and we stop? No, we build. Whenever you settle a new land, okay, you're excited when you're in the land, right? Imagine someone buys you a land, okay? And you come in there and you put the stakes down. This is the land that I have been given. Do you just stop and sit down and say, okay, we got the land now. So there's nothing else to do. No, that's ridiculous. You've got to build a foundation. Of course, the biblical analogy is he's already laid the foundation for you. You come into the land, it's already laid. He's like, all right, build on that now. And we have to decide if we're going to put in the work because it is work. It's not getting saved, but it's investing in the salvation that we've freely received by grace. So he says, look, all those trees right there. Cut down those trees. You're going to have to saw them. you got to make boards out of them. Right? Then you need to make mortar or you need to take the putty that's going to go between all the, you know, the different logs when you build your cabin. Okay? Then, hey, you need a garden, right? Go plant a garden. You got to plow the garden. You got to sow in the garden. You got to nurture the garden. There's work to be done. I mean, honestly, guys, that's one of the things about heaven that I'm excited about is there will be things to do. I don't know all the what we will do, but he's going to give us the whole universe as our playground and say, enjoy, build, grow, plant. He's going to give us work. And so right now, when you, when you get saved, imagine yourself as I'm in the land now. This is my land. Okay, I have a stake in it. But there is something else for me to do. And that is to build. That is to sow. So that will be a great harvest one day whenever the Lord returns and we see the result of our faith. And lastly, verses 10 through 12. And this is something that's powerful to me. It's another benefit, another advantage that we have. Okay, we have today. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. So the prophets were studying this stuff. Like, just like we studied the end times, right. the second coming, they were studying the first coming. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. Christ was just as active in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. And back then... The Spirit of Christ was inspiring these prophets. But it says that they were trying to understand what the Spirit of Christ signified when the Spirit of Christ testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So they had the sufferings and they had the glory right next to each other. All right, Messiah is going to reign. Amazing. Messiah is going to suffer. Okay, so how do we put these things together? So they were trying to understand how this is going to happen. Is there a gap between this? Does it happen and then the glory follow immediately after? Does the glory come first? Well, that's probably not reasonable that he would receive the glory and then suffer. It's probably the other way around. I mean, they're really thinking about this. And so Peter said, guys, you have all this information. He says in verse 12, unto whom it was re revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. So he said all this stuff that they were searching and trying to understand, they understood that it wasn't them. They knew that this was something that wasn't going to happen in their time. They knew that it would happen in the future. When exactly? They didn't know. 100 years? 200 years? 2,000 years? They didn't know. But they knew that it was for another generation. When they were putting this down on paper, they knew this was a legacy that they were passing down to the next generation. It might be them. Or it might be the generation after them. 
generation of our kids or grandkids, but they're going to be the ones to see it. So he's saying they wrote all this stuff for you and you have found yourself to be that generation. All these generations that came between the prophets and you thought they might've been that generation, but it wasn't them. It was you. It says, these are things that the angels desire to look into. And the word for look into here, I looked up the word, which is kind of neat study to do, but it's gaze down. Or it's like, imagine, you know, you hear somebody saying something that interests you and you poke your head around the corner and you're like, well, what's going on here? I want to hear about this. Oh, you hear somebody having a conversation on the street. Have you ever had, you know, people next to you having a conversation about politics or Jesus or the gospel or something? You just kind of, I want to hear what they're saying. I got to know what they're saying. You know, that's what the angels do when it comes to the gospel. They see it, obviously, but they gaze down at it because they're like, this stuff is neat. Like, this is nothing that we've ever experienced. They're not made in God's image. Jesus didn't die for them. They're not going to inherit the world to come. And rather than being jealous about it, they think it is cool as grits to study the glory of God as it is reflected by the church. And so Peter's saying, listen, not only do you have a blessing, a special advantage because you didn't see, okay? Blessed are those that believe yet haven't seen. You also find yourself in a position historically where you are receiving the grace, you are receiving the blessings, the good news for the first time. You're receiving it fresh when all these previous generations, they didn't get it. You do. And this is so wonderful that even the angels are excited. If you think the angels are wonderful, and I'm sure these Jewish people that had conversations about the angels, I can't wait to sit down one day and talk to the angels. What is it like being an angel? You know, tell me what your experience is like. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to say, okay, I'll tell you what my experience is like, but you first got to tell me, what is it like to be a human? What is it like to be one of you? I've seen you. I've watched you. We've been entertained by you. We, we've seen God show you grace. We have seen, you know, God receive glory when you persevere. What is it like to be you? Because they're not the children of God, and we are. So what Peter's doing here is saying, this is the inheritance. This is what Christ has won for you. This is how awesome it is. This is supposed to encourage you when you're going through trial and tribulation. It's worth the fight. It is worth pushing through. And again, we've talked about this a lot as we studied Hebrews. It's the same theme over and over again. But there's no greater motivation than just being reminded of how awesome we have been blessed. It's okay. We got some food that's about to be ready, and we're going to have our lunch in just a minute. But um, wrapping things up to make sure everybody's got their notes, the last note, which is note seven, the context of our faith, our place in the dispensations. Dispensation, just spell that the best you can. Our place in the dispensations provides us with better ble blessings, but it also increases our accountability before God. That's another thing. God takes all this into consideration. When we're running this race, there are lots of factors that God considers because he's all-knowing. He knows where we come from. He knows where we fall, historically speaking. He knows if we've seen miracles or if we haven't seen miracles, how much evidence have we been exposed to. He knows all this stuff. And our place in history is taken into consideration. He says, you have a special advantage. You've got the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You're not under the law. You don't have to keep those food laws. If you work on the Sabbath, you're not going to be executed. You have all of these blessings, these liberties, which previous people, previous generations didn't have. So that obviously is going to give you an advantage in this race. But it also increases your accountability. 
because you've been given all of this and other people back then wanted to have it, but they didn't. That means that God is going to hold you accountable for that extra blessing, those extra blessings that you do have. So it's at once exciting, causing us to rejoice, but it's also sobering, reminding us that we find ourselves held before God according to this standard that nobody else was held before, at least before the cross. And even since the cross, guys, back then, the first century, they received tons of miracles, didn't they? I mean, they, they, it talks about tongues and people walking that were lame and people seeing that were blind. I've never seen miracles like that, have you? I believe they happened, but I've never seen them. God takes that into consideration too. So we find ourselves especially blessed, but we also find ourselves accountable because we have advantages that other people didn't. And that is something that a lot of uh, preachers uh, across generations of preaching, um, I think they've missed. They try to unite the church so much from Old Testament to New Testament, putting it all together to where you really don't see the uniqueness of your position today. They just think that, oh, well, you know, back then, you know, in Egypt, they had the Holy Spirit too, and they were part of the church too. And well, they were loved by God and they were saved the same way we are through faith and the promise. But no, they didn't have all the same advantages that we do. And there's really no greater advantage than you can have in the church age than we are experiencing right now. There's not going to be another generation between us and the rapture when God gives us something else. We've gotten all the blessings that we're going to get okay, as, um, as, a, as the church. There's no other program. The next thing that happens is Jesus comes back. So that was something that he could say to his readers back then. The next thing that happens is Jesus comes back. And since you have all those blessings, do something with them. And so that's our blessing and that's our salvation. Let's have a word of prayer and then we're going to eat. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time. I pray, God, that something that I said is a blessing to those that hear, those that are present physically, and those that are listening later. I pray, God, that you will bless us so we can serve you well, that we'll remind ourselves of what we've already received so we can receive strength. We can receive the fortitude to press forward no matter what the temptation or hardship is. Be with all these prayer requests that were mentioned earlier. We lift up these people with burdens. We pray that we'll help bear one another's burdens, Lord, and that you'll help us by your Holy Spirit because we know when we don't have the strength, you supply that strength. Your grace is sufficient. And we also pray, Lord, you'll bless our food as a nourishment to our bodies, this food that you've given us and our bodies to your service, and that you'll bless our fellowship time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.